0: this is a podcast by wellhouse church where we take a closer look and dig a little deeper into this week's sermon what's going on bible nerds we are talking about the rest of acts 16 and the start uh, or and all of chapter 17 i'm sorry Uh, in this, we're, we're covering a lot this episode.
1: We are. Um, and the great thing, one of the things I love about this episode or this transition in the text in the book of Acts is you see something happen right here in chapter 16 in Philippi. Um, and we begin to see this like shift and a focus on women. Remember, we get this focus on Timothy's mom as the Jewish woman in the beginning of chapter 16. In the middle of chapter 16, we get this. 1611, we set sail from Troas and took a straight course to Somothrace the following day to Napolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days. Let me talk about Philippi for a second. Very wealthy province, historic province. It's also right alongside the Via Ignatia, which is the, the like main, it's like I-10 of the Roman Emperor, Empire. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate by the river. Where we suppose there was a place of prayer. All right. Now, if you remember Paul's mission, anytime he would go or strategy, anytime he'd go into a new big city, where would he go? To the market, right? Uh no. No. Where do you find go all the Jewish people? Oh, the temple. Or yep. the synagogue. The synagogue. Temple's only in Jerusalem. But right. the synagogue. synagogue. He would always go to the synagogue. When he shows up at Philippi, he doesn't go to the synagogue. Goes outside the city gates where he's down by the river where he supposes there's a place of prayer. And what does he find? And we sat down and spoke to the women who had gathered there. You see, in the ancient world and in the Roman Empire, you had to have six Jewish men to be eligible for a synagogue in that city. Yeah. They're outside because they don't have. Enough men. Mm. They don't have any Jewish men that want a synagogue. These are some strong independent women right here. We're about to meet one of them. Verse 14. A certain woman named Lydia, a worshiper of God, was listening to us. She was from the city of Thyatira and a dealer in purple cloth. She's rich. She she loaded. Uh, Lydia is a badass of the ancient world. Um, She's an entrepreneur. um, And she deals in purple cloth. Purple cloth is the most valuable fabric of the ancient world. Yeah, Lydia, textile magnate. No, She's the real deal. The Lord opened her heart to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul. When she and her household were baptized notice she and her household were baptized like same day immediately mm-hmm. like that crap is happening because Paul's entire mission is the dispensation of the holy spirit right that has been appropriated to baptism in Paul's mind so they are dunking people right away she urged us saying if you have judged me to be faithful to the lord Come and stay at my home. And she prevailed upon us. So what we have is we have a woman in the ancient world who's leading some other women of the ancient world. And she's a person of ethic, a person of character, because that's what she's asking them at the end, when she says, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my home. She doesn't have a husband. Mm-hmm. This is a badass woman mm-hmm. in a patriarchal world where it's hard for women to be able to do anything without a man. Mm-hmm. This woman is killing it. Yep. She's got an entire household that reports to her. No husband. Yep. Killing it. And she's a person of ethic. Mm. Person of ethic. Long story short. They hang out in Philippi for a while. And uh, as they're going around one day, they meet this woman who has a slave girl. And uh, this slave girl is a divinizer. text says that she has a spirit in her. And for a few days, she just kind of pesters Paul and Silas, like calling them, um, uh, what does she call them? Uh, Slaves of the Most High. Um, And so finally... Paul just kind of turns around and goes, hey, woman, like, hey, you spirit, in the name of Jesus, get out of here, and keeps on going about his way. Um, When he does that, the text says the spirit left within the hour. You would think that's a good thing, right? Mm -hmm. That would typically be a good thing, right, when people heal people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the problem is, is the people that own that slave girl, No, And she's called a slave girl in the text, verse 16. The people that own that slave girl basically pimp those services for money. Yeah. She's like a fortune teller and things. She's a divinizer. So when Paul casts the spirit out, there goes away a source of income. Mm -hmm. So they make a ruckus, and they get Paul and Silas thrown in prison Mm -hmm. or thrown in jail. Long story short, they're in there. Um. And an earthquake happens, they don't leave, the guard wakes up, he's going to commit suicide, they stop him. It's the whole thing, it really is a great story. If I didn't have to cover so much text, I wouldn't be blowing through it. But, they go out, and when the next morning happens, they tell, like the magistrate tells the guards to let the prisoners go. This is what Paul says. But Paul replied, this is verse 37, they have beaten us in public, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison, and now are they going to discharge us in secret? Certainly not. Let them come and take us out themselves. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. This is the first time that we learn that Paul is a Roman citizen. Mm -hmm. Um, This is an important detail. What do you know about what it means to be a Roman citizen in the ancient world, Clayton? Not much. I think most people don't. What most people know is that during the time of Jesus is the Roman Empire of the ancient world. The Roman Empire is historically very terrible to Jewish people. It's certainly strange for a Jew, which Paul is, to be a Roman citizen. You could become a Roman citizen one of three ways you could be born from the parents of a Roman citizen, so you can inherit citizenship, you can buy citizenship. Or you can work for citizenship. Odds are, Paul was either born Roman citizen or bought Roman citizenship. Either way, it is very difficult to become a Roman citizen just in general. It's extremely rare for a Jew Mm -hmm. to be a Roman citizen. That's why nobody even checks. Right. And so, when Paul drops this bomb on them that they're a Roman citizen, the magistrates get fearful. Why would the magistrates get fearful? Because the Roman Empire is an us versus them empire. Mm-hmm. We absolutely treat people who are not Roman citizens very differently than we treat people who are Roman citizens.
0: Yeah.
1: They profiled. Paul and Silas as Jews, who there's no way they'd be Roman citizens. They have up treating them that way. They objectified them. So they end up uh, trying to sweep this under the rug. They come down and apologize to him, take him out of the city and ask him to leave. They go to Lydia's home. And here's what I want you to see. And when they had seen and encouraged the brothers and, And the sisters, there they departed. What's different about that, Clayton?
0: The brothers and
1: sisters. Yeah, and here's the interesting part. The Greek doesn't even include the word sisters. Mm -hmm. It's just the brothers. Um, Now, that's just the way they kind of use like y'all. Right. But Lydia took back this message and converted some men, men that were not converted by a Jewish story, but were converted by a Jesus story, right? Mm -hmm. They're not there to worship at synagogue. They're not there to try to get a synagogue. They're not there to try to be faithful Jews, but they're here. They hear the message of Jesus and they become believers. They're brothers. Yeah. Become a part of the community. I think there's something to understanding because later, in the New Testament, we get the letter to the Philippians. Mm. Yeah, that's the same church. Paul writes that letter a few years later. Um, this church is run by women. Lydia is a badass, and she becomes this kind of shifting point And throughout Acts 17, there are multiple places, and well, throughout the rest of the the book of Acts, there are tons of places where it's prominently noted that women are involved in all of this. It becomes one of the main ways, it becomes one of the main metaphors through, I guess not even metaphors, but it becomes one of the main storytelling motifs that Luke continues to highlight in the book of Acts to show equality in the book of Acts. And it becomes real prominent here. Picking up in uh, 17, verse 1, the text, um, they go to a new place. They come to Thessalonica, uh, and they have a synagogue, and there's a bunch of Jews. Remember, we have the first and the second letter to the Thessalonians, Mm -hmm. the very apocalyptic people, Mm -hmm. okay? Paul shows up and starts talking to them about Messiah. Messiah. Remember, real apocalyptic people. Mm -hmm. Uh, He starts talking to them about Messiah and suffering. And uh, they're not really having it. Some of them, a few of them are persuaded. Um, And this is what it says in verse 4. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks. So we've got one breakdown.
0: The God fears.
1: Yep. And not a few... Of the leading women, Hmm. you did catch that word right there, right? Mm-hmm. What what did it's what kind of women?
0: The the ones that are not few, not a few of the leading women.
1: Leading women,
0: yeah, leading.
1: Okay, but the Jews become jealous and uh, they cause this kind of uproar and they kick them out of the city. Okay, uh. Then they go off to Berea. When they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. So once again, go into the synagogue. This is Paul's motivi. Always does this when he goes to a new city. Goes to the synagogue. And the text says, these Jews, verse 11, these Jews were more receptive than those in Thessalonica. <laughs> good, good little storytelling humor for you there. That's true. Um, for they welcomed the message very eagerly and examined the scriptures every day to see whether these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, including not a few Greek women and men of high standing. Notice once again, women named before men. Mm-hmm. We are seeing a shift in the power metaphor not just in the way in which the power metaphor is being communicated, Messiah, anointed one, the one who the savior must suffer, but also in the types of people that are responding to the message, oppressed people. Yeah. I say it all the time. Christianity cannot be a religion of power. It has to be a religion of oppressed people because it's the only way in which you can understand who your king is. Your king suffered. That is your metaphor. If your metaphor is one of power and exaltation, you have missed the point. That's what the Pharisees wanted. That's what the Sadducees wanted. That's what Peter wanted. That's what the Jews wanted. That's not what Jesus gave us. No. It cannot be a religion of power. If it's ever a religion of power, it's a religion of broken. It will always corrupt. Uh, And so they hang out um, in Berea for a while. And then um, they do some logistical things there at the end uh, in verses 13 through 15. And then Paul sends them on their way and Paul's waiting for them in Athens. They're trying to catch up to him. And he's... The text says he's deeply distressed that the city is full of idols. Clayton, talk to me about the city of Athens.
0: The city of Athens was like a hot spot. Um, It was like of the Peloponnesian Isles, right? Like, it was a hot spot. Lots of trading, lots of people. Um beautiful architecture and like kind of like a uh the, the the main piece of culture was happening in Athens at the time
1: what's it what's Athens most known for historically
0: um the the big uh amphitheater type thing oh um, no, no, no
1: not attraction like that yeah yeah, yeah you're right mm. but I mean like why do people know about Athens, Greece? If oh, you're,
0: well, they know about Athens because of Socrates. They know
1: about Athens because of philosophy. Yeah. Here we go. This is one of Paul's greatest moments in the book of Acts. This is like, if you were going to, you know, the every all the world's a stage speech. Mm. If you were going to give Paul one of those, it's this moment. Yeah. This is his big speech. This is when you go... Okay, Paul's on his shit.
0: This is, uh, this is Paul's uh, TED Talk. <laughs> exactly, exactly. This is his big moment.
1: text says, He was deeply distressed the, to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Also, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Okay. It's interesting that they note these two types of philosophies here in the book of Acts because Paul continues to battle Stoics Mm -hmm. littered throughout his entire ministry. I'm Mm -hmm. convinced that the Corinthians, that entire church is given over to Stoicism Hmm. more than Christianity. Just in the same way that America is given over to Platonism with a little bit of Jesus sprinkled on it, I think the Corinthian church is given over to Stoicism with a little bit of Jesus sprinkled on it.
0: Very interesting.
1: Some said, what does the babbler want to say? Very very accusatory, offensive kind of language. Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This was because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. mm -hmm. Okay, no, the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and asked him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? sounds rather strange to us. So they take Paul. And they say, hey, we want you to spit your fire, bro. We want your bars. Let's go. This is what Paul comes up with. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestry made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, And he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him. Though indeed he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commends all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So what's his argument? If you were going to encompass his argument in one statement, it would be this, that you missed it because you're worshiping the idol. God looks like you and I. You will be judged in righteousness what is rightness clayton rightness it is you in right standing with divinity and with humanity because humanity looks and acts like divinity god paul says you messed it up because you're not looking at us you're not looking at the people you're looking at the idol that's not what god looks like or cares about And they scoff at the resurrection but said, we want to talk to you more about this. But Paul in verse 33 said, I'm outie. Uh, At that point, Paul left them. But some of them joined him and became believers, including Dionysius, the Arapagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Once again, I want you to see the absolute inclusion of women. Paul had an opportunity to tell a very powerful people in a very powerful city of the ancient world anything he wanted to tell them. They asked him. He had their fullest attention. He could have told of power. He could have told the history of David. He could have told, you know, 2 Samuel 7. And, and, you know, he could have done all of that. It's not what he chose to say. He chose to say, hey, you missed it because God doesn't look like that. God looks like you and I and we will be judged on our righteousness by a man who looks like you and I. Paul's main premise in his argument is that, once again, you've missed it because you're looking to power. You're looking to worship power so that you might have power on your side. Remember the whole thing about the divinized slave girl using her for money? If you get out of that idea and you begin to think about divinity as more a lateral experience with a supreme God, um, you get to this place of equality and acceptance. And I think that's what, I think that's why you begin to see this shift around women right around Acts 17. Because leading up to all this, the shift has been out of Jews and into Gentiles. And now at Acts 16 and 17, we're getting a shift, not just within Gentiles, but to male and female. And it's because Paul is thinking about God in a way of saying, hey, God looks like us. Maybe we should treat us well. Maybe we should care for us